So I'm really excited to have Lucy here. I'm really pleased with myself that I had the idea to invite her, to be honest. Um, I think this is going to be amazing. Many of you are familiar with Lucy from WTC, which we just heard about as our theological training partner option in the vineyard pathway, leadership pathway. So um, I, think, I think we're really excited to have you here. Uh, we'll get a flavor for WTC as well as part of this. Um, one of the reasons why I invited Lucy to come and speak on Christology um, is that we talk a lot about intimacy and worship in the vineyard, don't we? And um, it, it's a good idea, I felt, to dr drill down a little bit on what what are we actually talking about? Who is Jesus and what does this look like in our worship? What are we actually doing? Um, and just by way of introduction, I wanted to share a, a brief story before I hand over to Lucy and then we're going to have some Q&A um, at, the, at the very end. But um, I was in a worship context where there was an older worship leader and a younger worship leader. Um, it's just the way it happened. It, it's not necessarily age-related, but um, the start of the set was led by the younger worship leader, and great songs, but not necessarily uh, very Jesus-centered, okay? Um, and then there came a point in the set when the older worship leader went into probably something like Holy and Anointed One or something uh, of that nature, and the whole room shifted, and I heard that the younger worship leader afterwards said to the older worship leader, how did you do that? And the answer was, I didn't do anything. We just sang to Jesus. Um, and so I'm really excited to unpack a little bit further to drill down. And well done for all of you worship leaders. Somebody once said to me, oh, worship leaders, they wouldn't want to do theology. They just want to play their guitars. That's absolutely not, not true. And I'm so glad that you're here. So I'm going to hand over to you, Lucy. Thank you so, so much for sharing with us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Harmony. Thank you for inviting me here. It's absolutely great to be here and so fun to be here um, in the week that you invite, uh, you uh, announce the partnership with WTC. We're really excited about that and um, so looking forward to having more vineyard students at WTC. Um, why don't we just pray before we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of worship that it's a gift from you to us that we then offer back to you thank you that you are the source of our worship and thank you that it's only in you and in your spirit that we offer it back to you and come into your presence and we pray lord today that you would just give us all deeper insight into what you're doing and how we can respond through our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this is such a great topic to speak on. I met Harmony just for the first time only a few weeks ago. And before we'd almost sat down, uh, she said, oh, I was wondering if you'd be able to come and help me with a, a, a seminar on Christology and worship. And I said, yeah, 
definitely. And she said, oh, I didn't know it was going to be that easy. <laughs> so maybe I should have played a harder game, you know. But, I, but this is my favourite topic, Christology. And I thought, what a fantastic idea to do a seminar on Christology um, with a bunch of amazing worship leaders. Christology is the study, it's, it's the theological term for the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So it is, Christology is the center of all of our worship, who we think of as Jesus, how we understand his work in the world is what is going to elicit um, our worship as Christians. And really, you shouldn't be able to do theology without worshipping. You shouldn't be able to study Christology without falling on your knees in worship before Jesus Christ. And you shouldn't be able to worship God without also worshipping Jesus. And we'll look um, at that a bit. But one of the long-standing questions for the church is, who is Jesus? Who are we talking about when we talk about Jesus? Now, you may think, oh, well, that's self-evident. But the church for 2,000 years has ruminated and contemplated this question and actually has come up with multiple answers to this question, who is Jesus? Some of them are wrong answers. And some of them are right. And most of them actually are just different perspectives on the same person that we hold together as Christians, as theologians, as church leaders, and as worship leaders. But the question I want to look at just um, for about 25, 30 minutes is... Who is the person we are offering our worship to? To whom do we offer our worship? Ideally, the worship of the church will have a focus on each of these perspectives. And I'm just going to look at some of them. We can't look at all of them, actually. It would take, I teach a whole module on Christology, and we're just doing 30 minutes. So we're going to obviously skate over a bit. But ideally, the worship of the church, the local church I'm talking about, will have a focus on each perspective on Jesus Christ at different times. Now, sometimes this is prophetically led. Sometimes this is a sense of, oh, this is what we're going to do today in coming to God and offering our worship to Jesus. Other times, this is systematized in a church calendar. And so you have different times of the year where you focus on different aspects of the life and work of Jesus Christ. Christmas is the incarnation, Lent, Easter, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, Pentecost, the Ascension. The Ascension gets forgotten. It's one of my favorite topics to speak on. Trinity Sunday, Harvest, they're all those things. In, in the more mainstream denominations, you have those woven into the church calendar. Or you can have both. 
What I want to look at today is a little bit of how we know what we know about Jesus and some of the different aspects of his person and his work that I think that we need to bear in mind as worship leaders as we're curating this space where the church comes into the presence of God. It's a, it's a serious thing um, to be charged with that responsibility. I've actually just been reading Colossians, uh, and I feel like it must be the worship leader's epistle. It's just, it's an absolutely phenomenal, uh, powerful little letter uh, by Paul written to this church, is wholly centered on Jesus Christ and who he is on the gospel of salvation, on the power of knowing God and being fully rooted and established in him. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians, about being established, of staying close to the truth of the Christian faith and in knowing the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ, that Christ longs to reveal to us. So they're hidden in him, but that's only because we can't find them anywhere else. It doesn't mean they're hidden away. It means that they're hidden waiting to be revealed, given to us, only coming from him. There is no way to access these treasures of wisdom and knowledge apart from through Jesus Christ. And then Paul um, says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through songs. So the songs, he, he's a teacher as he writes letters and we imagine he preaches but when he's talking to this little church he says you can teach and admonish and deepen each other's faith through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs songs from the spirit singing to god with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do whether in word or deed do it all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So who is this Jesus that we're singing to, that we sing about, um, and that we are ultimately offering ourselves to in acts of worship? That's the space that worship leaders, and worship leaders are also the people who lead the time of worship, and then there's singing as well. And so who... who who is this Jesus that we're inviting others to offer their lives to in the worship space? Now, amazingly, I actually have three R's for this talk. <laughs> I would like you to take a moment to rejoice with me in this, as it never happens. And um, it... It was very easy, and I, so I felt like this was the Lord. <laughs> Revelation, reports, and reflections are the three foundations of Christology. Revelation, reports, and reflections. We only know who Jesus is because he tells us and because the Spirit convinces us that it's true. 
I'm going to go through these things quite quickly and we can come back to some of them maybe if you would like in questions and answers because I know you know these things so I'm just kind of, I feel like I'm mapping a territory for you which you'll be very familiar with but as I map it you might think, oh that's helpful, that's a way of, of having a grasp on these things. Jesus teaches that he is the anointed one, which is why we call him Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And this, of course, ties him in with the whole history of the Jews because he is the Jewish Messiah. And so he is the one anointed who also shares the identity with Yahweh that nobody else shares. So God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then Jesus comes looking like, does this look like God is two? And he makes the claim that he is one with the Father. And so God is still one, except God is now manifest in three. And Jesus is the anointed one. And he answers, he does answer people when they ask him. And, uh, or when they tell him, he says yes. That's true. There's a strange myth uh, going around about the Gospels that Jesus never says he's God. Is it? You may have heard that. Uh, so, but he does. In John 11, there's a wonderful exchange with Martha. I always like to put that first because people always talk about Peter's confession of Christ, but Martha has an extraordinary confession of Christ and uh, in a time of deepest grief. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. So she, as a Jewish woman, says, I know who you are. I know you're our Messiah, our saviour. And there's the famous one when Peter says in Mark 8, because Jesus has said, who do people say I am? And they say, oh, people say that you're John the Baptist and Elijah and, you know, you're a prophet. And Jesus then says, but who do you say I am? Which is the question that Jesus asks everybody. You can't meet Jesus without having to face that question. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. So these two disciples, Martha and Peter, both say to him, we know who you are. You're the anointed one of God. And Jesus himself teaches that he and the Father are one. So he, he says, I, I am one with the God that you worship already. So now your worship to that God now comes to me. And, and that is why they killed him, because they, he shouldn't have taught that. That was the blasphemy that he was killed for, was saying that he was one with that God. So he's the anointed one. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's also the sender of the Spirit, and he is one with the Spirit. So. You can't meet Jesus without having a Trinitarian theology. You, you have to have the Trinity to understand who Jesus is. And Jesus is one with the Father. He's the son of the Father who makes the Father the Father because the Father isn't a father unless he has a son. And then the Spirit is the one who is sent 
into the world. The Spirit's been at the beginning, at the creation of the world, but there's a new sending of the Spirit, just as there's a new coming of God when God, the Son, assumes human flesh and human nature and comes to walk among us. There's a new thing that goes on in God's revelation of who he is. And Pentecost is the next thing that we see after the resurrection and the ascension is it looks like Jesus has gone. So he, I think, always rather comically disappears into, you know, up. And there are those funny paintings with Jesus' feet at the bottom and, and all the, the disciples looking up. But it, so Jesus goes and then there's Pentecost, the new coming of the Spirit, the Spirit coming in a different way. And Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit in John 16. He says, I've much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. He'll glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The, um, church, the early church fathers, who most of them spoke Greek, had this word perichoresis, which sometimes gets misunderstood to mean something associated with the dance but actually what they meant by that was that the father and the son and the holy spirit mutually indwelt one another they inhabited each other and so that's why th there's no way that the son as john says has made god known or as paul claims that it's in him that the fullness of god dwells bodily there's no way that that could happen unless the father and the son and the holy spirit mutually indwell one another it's not that it's something that's given oh take this from me and take it out there it's something they bear is the godhead they are the godhead the father the son and the holy spirit so whoever we worship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are worshipping God. And that was an essential part of early church theology, was trying to reiterate again and again and again and again that there was no separation between Jesus, the Son, who had come to earth as Jesus of Nazareth, and the Father that there wasn't a distinction of being or essence, that the son wasn't lower than the father. And that's why I think Colossians is the worship leader's epistle, because it drives that home so powerfully. It's the highest Christology. Well, Hebrews is an incredibly high Christology, but Colossians really sums that up for me. When we come to Jesus, we come to God. And then we have reports, and these are different ways of knowing Jesus. So we have this revelation that we can't know unless the Holy Spirit tells us. There's no way of knowing what I've just said to you by just reading about Jesus and going, well, he seems like an interesting man. But the, we do have the stories where he seems like an interesting man. 
he's really challenging and difficult and strange and wise and loving and extraordinary. And so we have all the gospel stories, the four of them. I love the fact that we have four. Four personal, diverse perspectives on the stories of Jesus. And so much overlap between them, but also they're very different from one another. And so when we read the four of them, we see Jesus slightly differently, depending on whose gospel we read. But let me just give you a brief summary of some of the themes that I think come out in all of them. That Jesus is the teacher, which means he's a rabbi. So that is what the first disciples thought of him. They didn't know he was the Messiah. They thought he was a rabbi, and he, they followed him for that reason. But we have his teachings uh, for all time in the scriptures. He was a healer and he was a deliverer from demonic forces. There's this amazing passage in a verse in Luke 6:19 that says, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. He was this powerful presence on the earth. He was a servant and he was a king of his kingdom. So he brings the kingdom and he is the king and he's king above all kings and all rulers and all powers and all authorities and he comes and demonstrates that. But then tragically and horrifically and bizarrely for all the people around him, he gives that up in order to allow himself to be crucified on a cross. And so he's a servant and he's the one who lays down his life. He's the last person on earth who should lay down his life because he's the source of life. He is life. Who is this person who created the universe through his word and his power and upholds the universe who then lays down his life in order to save us from the destruction that we have caused in the first place? So he is the savior. He's also, we see, a disruptor of the status quo. He's a challenger of the empire, and he's a challenger of his own temple systems. He's the champion of the underdog and the outsider and women, and he is a deeply unsettling and difficult presence to people around him. All this needs to be part of our worship. All of it. And finally, my third topic is reflections on him. Reflections. There have been many, 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 many tomes, billions, billions of words written on Jesus Christ because he's endlessly fascinating. And there are some that have endured for many years that are just wonderful texts. Then we have the Bible, but we also have other reflections on who Jesus is. So I've just um, mentioned a couple of kind of high points, I think, in Scripture. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which talks about the condes condescension and the exaltation of the Son. These two movements of the Son the condescension of, of God himself into the world where he gives up what's his right to come and save us and be like us. And then his exaltation above all things, the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow is Jesus Christ. 
And then Colossians, as I said, 1, 15 to 19, which I absolutely love, which Paul describes Jesus here. It's like the opposite of what we see in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see this man who walks through the Middle East, who is so real and so engaging and fascinating. And then Paul writes about him in Colossians, and we find out that he created the whole universe, and he stands over the universe, eternal, immortal, invisible now. He is invisible again. We can't see him anymore. The creator, the head of the church, the ruler of all things, and the reconciler of all things. Everything in heaven on, and on earth is going to be reconciled in Jesus Christ, the only Prince of Peace for the world. And then Hebrews 9 and 1 Timothy 2 talk about Jesus, the mediator between God and humanity. He is the final priest, the only priest who could really atone for all of our sins, and he's the one who did that for us. And it's his blood, which is the blood of the new covenant, where we come into a relationship with God, where God is our God and we are his people. The, the relationship that he had reserved for his own people, the Jewish people, and their Messiah came for all of us. And that was an affront to some of them. But that was the message, and Paul picked that up and ran with it. So theologians use three different categories to describe what I've just gone through with you, and that is the Jesus of history, the Christ of faith, and the Christ of dogma, the Christ of our beliefs, of our creeds. And I actually think that in our worship, we need to be in touch with all those three. We, we need somehow, as a church, to be able to connect on those three levels in different ways. And those of us who lead worship are going to have to pay attention to, to those three things in different ways to say, how are we bringing people into the presence of this Christ, of this Jesus? And what does that look like and feel like? Because our worship is given to the person, the word of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, Jesus of Nazareth, who is all those things, who is all the three things that theologians focus on. I just want to finish then with something that may be a bit, a, a bit less familiar, um, but may not. Uh, it, it depends on uh, your study up till now, and I know many of you have studied, so this might just be going over old ground. But the Christ of dogma is something which more traditional churches have always held a space for that for the recitation of the creed. We say the creed together, and we some churches say it every week and have communion every week 
and it is part of their statement of faith of this is what we believe. And then in other churches, we don't say it. In my own church, we don't say it very much. I would like to say it more. Um, but the creeds were statements of faith about Jesus Christ. And I believe say important things. And so we talk about the Christ of faith. And I think that we here probably have quite a developed way of expressing that. The, the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we're singing to and speaking about and speak to on a regular uh, sort of occasions in our lives. And what we imagine when people are walking into our churches is that most of those people will share that knowledge. And some people will come in. We know some people won't share it. And so we're conscious of that. And we, and we try and reach them as well and draw them into that relationship that we know of. And we, we uh, try and do that through our singing and through our speaking and through our praying and etc. But the Christ of dogma is a bit different. It's reflections on Jesus and his nature and who he is, that in my experience gives us something more than just the Jesus of faith, the my Jesus, you know? I love the my Jesus. I love being part of a church tradition that talks about Jesus as if he's real, <laughs> as if we do speak to him and he speaks to us. But something about the dogmatic Christ, the Christ that the whole church says, we believe this, is a powerful message. So I just want to give you two examples of that, and then I'd love to have some questions and, and chat with Harmony as well. The Nicene Creed was written in 325, and it was called, actually, by the emperor, Constantine, who was um, fed up with the Christians squabbling about what they believed and had made some kind of Christian commitment. And so he called them all together to see if they could come, out, come up with a consensus of what we believe. And there were some serious threats coming against the Christian faith and belief from within, not from without, although there was stuff going on outside. And so this was an important council. And here, they you'll be familiar, I know, with, with the text of the Nicene Creed, so I'm not going to read it all. And the version I've got says, I believe, but actually I love, we believe better. But so they begin with a statement about God the Father Almighty, and then turn to Jesus Christ. And the main point that they want to get across is that this Jesus Christ is one with the Father who we have just said we believe in, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And then they have a word which is originally in Greek, um, consubstantial, 
with the Father, of what they mean is of exactly the same essence. There's no wedge between the two of them. This son who we worship, when we come to him, is bringing us to the Father, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And that's the son. And that's why he's worthy of our worship. Through him, all things were made. There's not a more powerful statement of how powerful Jesus Christ is, that through him all things were made. That's from Colossians and John 1 and Hebrews 1 refers to those things. Because interestingly, when you go to Genesis 1, he's not there. <laughs> we can't find him there. We only find out later on when the sun comes to earth, the revelation is given about the fullness of the Godhead, of the Trinitarian God. And we find out that this Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. And then they turn and tell a few of the story, a bit of the story from the Gospels. And then they talk about the Spirit. And then they talk about the church. Remarkably, these were the things they could agree on. They did agree on. And these have lasted for 1,700 years, these words, and have been passed down generation to generation to generation, and people still stand up and say them in the church. It was a triumph. There, was a, there were many ecumenical councils, but the other one that were, came over a century later in Chalcedon, and they were still wrestling with who is Jesus, though? But who is Jesus? And they felt like they had really won some ground by saying that Jesus is of one essence, of one substance with the Father. They'd managed after... It took nearly a century, but they managed eventually to kind of bat off this threat that wanted to say, oh, Jesus is just a little bit lower than the Father. When you think about God, don't you just think of Father, then the Son, then the Spirit? And they were saying, no, 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 you don't. And no, you shouldn't. Because the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So our doxology is to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. But then they were trying to work out, so... We think we've got this idea that Jesus is God, but, but we don't want to lose the fact that he's also human, fully human. It's the biggest conceptual challenge to people of faith, I think, outside the Trinity. The Incarnation and the Trinity are the two biggest conceptual challenges to our little minds. And there are any little minds... They'll get bigger as we go to be with God in glory. But they struggle down here. And what we struggle with is the idea that Jesus is really, truly God and also really, truly man all at the same time. And still is today. Still truly God and still truly man which is why the doctrine of the ascension is so important. 
And so when they got to Chalcedon, they realized that there was more to say because people were veering more to one side and to another. And this is what I just want to finish on, that as worship leaders and as Christians, you'll know that we go through phases of how we relate to God. And sometimes we relate more to this perspective on God than this one. And sometimes we focus more on Jesus as the universal Christ. And sometimes we focus more on Jesus as the tired man who walked away when he heard that John the Baptist had died. It's such a tragic moment. His, his dearest friend, the person who had paved the way for him, and he hears that in a horrific moment of pride and brutality, he had his head cut off and he just walks away to be on his own. The Jesus who weeps in the garden while his friends can't even stay awake. And then the Christ who says, I'm and the Father are one. And I'm going to send the Spirit and he'll teach you all truth. The Jesus who is all truth. We'll come to God in so many different ways. And as worship leaders, I believe we need to be capacious in our understanding of who God is. Because the more we hold those big spaces, the more we're giving people opportunity to come into God in one way or another way or another way. And what I wanted to do today is just give you a little glimpse of how, of how theologians talk about Jesus in different ways that can enrich our understanding of who we're bringing people to when we bring them to worship Jesus. Wasn't that so good? Um, I'm ready to go into a worship set now. <laughs> um, interesting, do you know what spring to mind? Do you know the song that we're singing at the minute, one of the new vineyard ones? Uh, Spirit, breathe upon this altar. Father, have my undivided heart. Jesus, I surrender. They're in the wrong order. <laughs> Is the, you know, it's like, so we actually had a discussion about this very thing when we were deciding about whether this song was finished or it needed some more work there was a discussion about is it okay to start with spirit to not start with father you know it was a, this is real life stuff right here in in our world so that was very helpful i'm glad that we went with our version and we didn't over edit um do you know just to start us off in a time of of questioning i would love to know who in here is a Worship leader or worship pastor? Okay, that's a lot of the room. Any senior pastors in this space? All hiding at the back. Oh, Seamus is a brave <laughs> one at the front. <laughs> Great. Um, and other? <laughs> Great. Super. Excellent. So primarily worship leaders, and that's a win, isn't it? Um, but so glad that you're all here. I wanted to kind of break this down a little bit to start us off. So let's talk about worship songs. What should we be looking out for in our worship songs, Lucy? 
Um, I, well, obviously, I'm a theologian, so I would, and I know you all know this, but I would say, look out for the, um, the communion of your song with the scriptures and with orthodox doctrine of the church. And I, I think that's essential. And that would be my first. That would be my my first stake in the ground. You mm -hmm. know, is it is what I am writing. Is does that come out from the scriptures, and is it in harmony with the scriptures, with the canon? It doesn't need to be word for word, although those are powerful songs as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the scripture mm -hmm. is already given. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I'm. As I'm interpreting the truths of the Christian faith in order to put them to to music, am I? Is that in line with Orthodox doctrine? Mm. Any follow-up questions to that in the room? Yeah. I don't see them as um, incompatible at all. And I don't write songs, um, but obviously I sing a lot of them. Uh, because I think when you read the songs of the scriptures, the Psalms, they are both poetic. And so I wouldn't want to conflate the idea that orthodox doctrine is somehow literal and somehow not poetic or expansive or evocative of other things. Um, you can read, well, obviously reading the scriptures shows you that the scriptures speaks in so many different ways and is highly poetic. And also reflections on the scriptures that have been written over the centuries, many of them are so beautiful and probably could be put to music straight away. Good answer, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit, so that's the song. Let's talk about the worship set. So one of my questions is, does it matter if we sing the name of Jesus in a worship set? Talk to us about the worship set. Um, I would say that it, it matters that the people who are gathering to worship have some cognizance that Jesus is at the center of that yeah so um, however that is however that's done I think it's important and so there are things that can be supplements to you know you as the person who is leading the song or the musical element of the worship you don't necessarily I think shouldn't feel that you have to put everything in, you know, that there can be other opportunities. It, it may be someone speaking, or if you've just had the talk, or if you're about to have the talk, or whatever, that there are ways of, of signposting, we're singing this, but this always is going to be about Jesus, if you see what I mean. So I think that 
I, I, for me, the worship is the whole service. And the musical element is part of that. It's integrated into the worship. And so I don't think that the sung worship should feel the burden of having to express absolutely everything. Does that make sense? I think everyone's just breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask one more question and then you guys can fire out some questions as well. Um, the role of the worship leader, worship pastor, this world of theology, is that not the senior pastors or the, or the, you know, the teachers, the preacher's job? Talk to us about the role of the worship leader, Lucy. Yeah. I would say that in um, churches like ours, and my, my church at home is very similar, I would say, in feel and culture to your churches, um, that I think it's beholden upon the worship leaders to study some theology and to take seriously their role as someone who mediates truth to the congregation and so it's I think it's great if you write songs have have your friendly theologian who you refer to you know your person who you trust who you run things by and and check things with or a couple of people um, but I don't think that's a reason not to for yourself to dig into some of the riches of theology and I I, I also feel for my you know, my job obviously is running a college, but what I really feel I'm called to do is to bring back, to help to bring back with my many wonderful colleagues and partners and friends, the idea that theology is a gift from God to his church and is full of riches and treasures waiting to be explored and is not a dry and dusty, you know. So it, it shouldn't feel like a chore. It shouldn't feel like, oh gosh, we better go and do this because, you know, tick that box. That would be horrendous. But if, if we have responsibility in the church, any responsibility for, you know, teaching kids, running Bible studies, especially worship leading, you are teaching the church. So if you are part of teaching the church, you should be a learner, definitely. That was well said. <laughs> and I suppose you could say 50% of our service, more or less, give or take a few minutes, is sung mm. worship. Mm. So that's, that is something for us to think about as worship leaders. Okay, to the floor now. I've noticed that. Mm. I came into the 
Anglican Charismatic Church in 1989, which was when John Wimber was coming over here a lot. Right. And I went to a worship conference in 1989 with David Roos at Brighton oh, with my church. And oh, it was fantastic. Honestly, so it was so powerful, so powerful, I felt. Um, and I feel that, uh, you know, that these 30 years, there's been a drift away from the corporate expression um, to a very me-centered. Mm -hmm. I think it's really Western. Mm -hmm. And um, we've, it's one of those things, you know, the church is always asleep to its blind spots, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And so we've drifted into it, but I think it would be good for us to jolt ourselves out of it. I think the other side of that is in the early days, if you look at some of those earlier videos, you can actually hear the people singing. So yeah. even if you're singing about, if you're using I, you still hear everybody singing. So there's something about the, the production yeah, and how our technology and all of that, our bands have moved on as well, which is part, of the, part of the equation. And even the lighting, I've <laughs> noticed, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like when we were, when I was young, this was, you know, we were just all had lighting. We didn't have that kind of dark space for where people sat mm -hmm. and then the stage lit. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you were very conscious of everyone mm -hmm. around you. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about these different like, aspects of who Jesus is, which was great. Um, I wondered if, if you know, you've noticed any of those aspects that um, maybe are particularly lacking in what we say. Mm. Great question. Yeah, no, that is a really good question. I, I think it's so, it's difficult to tell, isn't it? Because I don't know kind of what you think. And, um, but um, I think I would just say, I don't, I don't see the songs being as rich as they could be um, in often. And that given there is this wealth of, perspectives on Jesus that it would be great to really embrace all of that you know I I don't think I would say that I feel like something's been completely lost um except that I I think that um I think that there may be certain aspects of the Christian life that we would do well to to bring out in our worship, like when we sense, when we have loss or grief or pain or anger or, you know, things that the psalmists felt at liberty to express. And I'm wondering, well, so I think I would say more that's the case of where we need to have some spaces where we can be a bit more real in our worship. Um, and I think maybe bringing people on a journey um, through confession, which is also something I think can get lost in our kind of churches. So I love the I love the the freedom to run into God's presence. You know, I'm all for that. But I also think that there needs to be a space for for confession and repentance and acknowledgement of who we're coming to. And if that's not done it through the liturgy, then that could be done really beautifully through song.
this. Ladies first. Um, I feel like there was an unfair characterization of like God is my boyfriend. Um, and I think that killed off a lot of songs that had a lot of worth actually. Mm. And to have, I've seen like a worship leader there with a guitar singing on repeat, I love Jesus. And I think it's actually really powerful. Um, it actually takes some balls to sing that, you know? But I feel like we're in a Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's a kind of cultural moment thing, isn't it? Why are we doing this? Um, I, I would say, I was saying when Harmony and I were chatting in preparation, and I, I said to her, one of the things I do think is that we, we just shouldn't feel that we have to give the whole breadth of Christian doctrine in half an hour. You know, and there's no way that we will be able to represent all the characteristics of the nature of God in 30 minutes. Um, and so, and what I love about the charismatic church is that it, is that we have, we do in a sense follow a prophetic liturgy, but then that is also one of our deepest weaknesses. Um, so instead of having the calendar that's given to us and we say, oh, today we're going to do this. So that in, in, you know, in, in de other bigger denominational churches, you would cover everything in a year and it would take you a year. And so that's kind of a good reminder, you know, that it's going to take a year to do all of this. Um, and it may be that I think it's great that you're thinking along those lines of going, well, wait, we've sung this a lot. <laughs> Let's maybe do something, you know, to display another attribute of God. That's what you're saying. And that's brilliant. And yes, you should be doing that. Um, and that's important. Oh yeah. Um, because you know, maybe specifically in connection with what you said about the ascension, Jesus isn't just still a man; he's still a man from a particular culture, mm. which just wouldn't say that mm. name. Mm. And so, and and there's a, this kind of renaissance of of study into the Jewishness of Jesus. And I wonder whether I noticed you wrote Yahweh on, on the on the handout, and I just there's some songs that just sort of brazenly mm. sort of declare that name. I wonder if you think there's a problem with that or no problem with that. Question. Yeah, I... Could you summarize the question? Oh, yes. The question is, is there a problem with the way that we use the name of Yahweh freely 
in our worship. And um, so, I, yeah, I mean, in scholarship, obviously, you use it um, because it's a word that connotes only what it connotes. So there is, it doesn't mean anything apart from what, you know, we understand it to mean. Um, I would like to ask my Old Testament colleagues about that, um, but I have a an inkling that they would also be reticent as you're feeling. And um, I think that the language that we have been given is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I think we're on safest ground if we stick with those terms. And that's an interesting question as well, obviously, because you know that people play around with those. <laughs> and and I, I have some reservations about that. Um, although I think it's very important that the Spirit has a personal pronoun and not a neuter. Um, but yeah, so if you're feeling cautious, I, I, like, I would say to my students, trust your theological intuitions and then go and explore and find out, you know. So you've got a theological intuition, go and find out why you have that reservation because I think you probably have a reason for having it. Go and find out. <laughs> no, no, Jesse. Yeah, and then write something on it. Because that's the. No, I'm serious. People love me on Facebook when I write things. No, no, write it, write it like a paper, like oh, a, a, an essay, you know, uh, and explain why. Because that's where people will go, ah, oh, okay, I get it. Facebook, no. Facebook, no, yeah. <laughs> essay, yes. Thank you for saying that, Lucy. <laughs> there was a question at the back as well. Uh, Lucy, after you, you, you mentioned the word sort of reservations a moment ago, are there any uh, sort of tropes or uh, maybe themes is too big a word, but something in contemporary worship and liturgy that make you cringe? That <laughs> <laughs> we should be aware of. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for asking that. <laughs> and I'm just getting the one-minute signal here yeah. from Sandra. No pressure, Lucy. Uh, I, all I, one of the things that I struggle with most is um, the uh, uh, any intimation that there is some kind of separation between the father and the son, which does sometimes come out. Mm. In, and, it, and I know where it comes from because it comes from an, a, a certain perspectives on the atonement. And because I teach on that and I teach something quite different, I still teach substitu substitutionary atonement and I believe in it extremely strongly, but I don't teach it in the way that sees some kind of separation between the father and the son. And so I struggle with that. And I also... Um, Personally, uh, this is a, a, a my theological conviction is that I don't see God as having every single attribute of humanity in the way that we have it, and so I believe in it deeply. Believe in a compassionate God, but I myself wouldn't say that God suffers in the way that we suffer. So, in in those kind of things I would not so much cringe but I do internally I think I, I wouldn't say that mm. 
Good question. Oh, Lucy, thank you so, so much. Check out WTC, folks.